One of the things I enjoy doing is looking up the story behind certain hymns. Um, I'm sure some of you have done that. One of the favorite stories, one of my favorite stories behind a hymn is a missionary story. It's the story behind I have decided to follow Jesus. It supposedly originated in India in the 19th century a group of missionaries came to a region in northeastern India to share the gospel. The inhabitants of this region were known to be aggressive, violent headhunters who met these missionaries and basically told them to go home. But the missionaries stayed, um, reasoning that even headhunters need to hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Through their work, um, one man uh, believed the gospel along with his wife and his children. And then through their testimony, a number of people within the village came to believe the gospel. This enraged the chief of that village. And so what he did was he drugged the original family um, into the middle of the village and asked them to publicly renounce their faith in Jesus Christ or face execution, quite simply. To which the man said, I have decided to follow Jesus. So the chief ordered uh, his archers to shoot down his two children. And they did. And he said, what about now? Will you renounce your faith in Jesus or do you want your wife to be next? To which he said, Though no, none go with me, still I will follow. They shot down his wife. And then they turned and said, This is your last chance. Renounce Jesus or you too will face death. To which he replied, the world behind me, the cross before me, no turning back, no turning back. He too was shot and killed as the story goes, but this wasn't the end of the story. Through this bold witness publicly, there were others within this village who came to faith in Jesus Christ, supposedly even the chief who ordered the execution. This is an inspiring story and appropriate, I guess, on a Sunday that we're sending missionaries, although I hope you do not face (laughs) these same struggles and trials. Inspiring in our own call to take up our cross and follow Jesus. But this morning, my sermon is not so much about our decision to follow Jesus. My sermon this morning has to do with a decision that Jesus made. A decision that we see parallel references to within this song. You see, before any person ever truly decided to follow Jesus, Jesus made a decision. 
before we ever take up our cross and follow Him, He took up the cross. And He faced that cross alone. None went with Him. The world behind Him, the cross before Him, there was no turning back for Him. Jesus made a decision to follow the will of God. And this is basically what I have to say this morning. I'm very aware in this passage in front of me how inadequate I am. But the basic message is that before Jesus went to the cross, He decided to go to the cross. I know that may seem simple or unremarkable, but it is remarkable. You see, we have to remember what we said last week. Jesus was not a victim. He was a volunteer. And so therefore, as a volunteer, it's not just that He went to the cross. It's that He decided to go to the cross willingly in accord with the will of God that is crucial for us. For ever since Adam's fall, apart from the Spirit of God, no human has ever made a decision to live his life fully within the will of God. But then the Son of God took on flesh. God became a man to die for our sin, yes, but also to live the life that we have failed to live. Before He died for our sin, He decided to die for our sin. And this decisive moment takes place in the Garden of Gethsemane, which is our main passage for this morning. So if you would, please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26, verses 31 to 46. Our passage this morning is divided into two parts. The first part predicts that the disciples will fall away, that Peter will deny Jesus three times. Then in the second part, beginning in verse 36, Jesus prays in Gethsemane. And it may seem like these two parts of this passage don't really hold together thematically, but I think they hold together in a crucial way. In the one, you see the failure of humanity or the failure of the human will to follow the will of God. Whereas in the second, you see Jesus, fully God but also fully human, aligning His human will with the will of God. These are set in contrast to one another to highlight what Jesus accomplished. So bear that in mind, this contrast, as we read these verses together. Would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? Verses 31 through 46. This is following the Last Supper. They have sung a hymn and made their way to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus says to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. 
For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Like I said, this passage highlights a contrast between Jesus' disciples and Jesus, which is really a contrast between all humanity since Adam and the new Adam, Jesus Christ. The disciples fail to follow the will of God. Jesus aligns His human will with the will of God. That's Those are my two basic points this morning. So to divide my time, we'll begin looking at humanity's failure through the lens of the disciples' failure. Then we'll look at Jesus' obedience and His prayer at Gethsemane. So let's begin with the first point, which is this. Fallen humanity fails to follow the will of God. This is predicted um, in verses 31 to 35. But I want you to notice uh, simply for, for now, anyhow, what Jesus says specifically in verse 31. He says, you will all fall away because of me this night. That word fall away in the Greek is where we get our word for scandal. Scandal. The word is found in a number of uh, critical places within Matthew, but I want to draw your attention to two of those places that I think are 
critical. Critical for understanding why Matthew is placing this prediction of the fall away, the falling away of the disciples next to Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane. He's trying to highlight this contrast between the failure of the disciples and the faithfulness of Jesus. So the first place this word, scandalizo, where we get the word for scandal, shows up is in Matthew 11. Matthew 11, when John the Baptist's disciples come to Jesus and ask him, are you the one who is to come or should we look for another? They want to know if Jesus is the Messiah. This is a question from doubt. What leads to their doubt? Could it be the fact that John the Baptist is in prison? What kind of Messiah lets some of the people that are most in favor of what he's doing rot away in prison? Isn't the Messiah supposed to deliver the prisoner? Jesus answers their question by saying, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. In other words, I'm fulfilling all of the things that the Old Testament predicted would be true of me. But then this is where he lands. And blessed is the one who's not offended by me. Or literally, blessed is the one who's not scandalized by me. Who's not tripped up by me. Who doesn't fall away on account of me. One commentator said that John and his disciples were disappointed in Jesus. Even translate it, blessed are those who are not disappointed in me. Jesus wasn't meeting their expectations for a Messiah. What kind of Messiah leaves suffering and imprisonment in His wake? What kind of Messiah will do the things that Jesus is going to do in the rest of the narrative in Matthew? What kind of Messiah gets seized and tried and doesn't even speak up in his own defense, and then is crucified. Blessed are those who are not scandalized by this Jesus. The second place that I want to highlight where this word is used is in Matthew 16. Right after Peter confesses faith, right after he says, you are the Christ, the Son of God. What does Jesus do? He goes on to predict for the first time Matthew 16, uh, 21, that he would be killed and on the third day be raised. Jesus, I mean, Peter then takes Jesus aside after that and rebukes Jesus saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And then Jesus turns to Peter and he says this, here's our word. Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. 
Why? For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Literally, you are a scandal to me. A stumbling block to me. You are trying to tempt me to fall away from the will of God, which is the cross which is set before me. Then Jesus goes on to tell His disciples, if anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. Do you notice in our passage for this morning, we have this word scandal. We also have this prediction of a denial. Those same cluster of ideas are found here. The disciples of John and the disciples of Jesus believe He's the Messiah, but they don't understand how a Messiah would allow suffering and certainly not submit to suffering. They don't understand why He would call them to deny themselves and take up their cross. Jesus is teaching them a very important lesson. There are really only two options in life. You can deny yourself and follow the will of God, which is a way of suffering. Or you can deny the will of God and indulge your own self-interest, which may lead to a perceived sense of safety and an absence of suffering. But the reality is, is the only way to true eternal life is the way of the cross. The cross must come before the crown. Suffering before glory. This does not make sense to the world. In fact, it is a stumbling block for many. Paul calls the Gospel foolishness to the Greeks and what? A stumbling block to the Jews. A crucified Savior doesn't make sense to them. So Jesus predicts that the disciples will fall away because of Him. Because He's going this way. This way that doesn't make sense to them. Peter says, they may fall away, but I will will never fall away. Jesus says, bro, You're going to deny me three times in just a matter of a few hours. Jesus says, I mean, Peter says, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples say the same. They show a willingness to follow Jesus even to death, but they've not completely bought in to the fact that God's will is for the Messiah to die in order to save His people from their sin. So how are they going to be able to follow through with something that they don't even yet have a clear vision for? What it means. It's a stumbling block for them. Jesus tells them ahead of time, you will fall away. So it's no surprise that when Jesus is arrested, when the shepherd is struck, that the sheep 
scatter. They take to flight. You see this in verse 57 fulfilled. But it's interesting. We'll deal with this more next week. But before they take to flight, some of them try to fight. What should they be doing if they really get the way of the cross? They really get the will of God. They really get what it means to follow Jesus. They should face His coming crucifixion with faith. But instead, they see it as a threat. And so some take to flight. Others try to fight. Peter cuts off the ear of the servant of the high priest. They don't face the cross with faith. They're not really willing to do God's will. Instead, they fight. They take to flight. Which is the equivalent of denying Jesus. Denying this Jesus. The one sent to suffer. As they come to the garden, their resolve to follow Jesus to death is tested. Or at least for Peter and James and John. He asks them to stay awake with Him while He prays. But after praying for about an hour, which it's interesting that that to Him seems like a short time, He comes back and He finds His disciples fast asleep. Maybe it was daylight savings time and they'd lost an hour the night before. I don't know. But it does strike one as a little funny that these disciples who said, I'll go with you to death, they can't even stay up with Him for one hour and pray. They're supposed to be there supporting Jesus. These are the three that went to see Him on the mountain of transfiguration. They liked that. But now that they're at Gethsemane, at the Olive Press, they can't stay awake. They're supposed to be supporting Him, but they're the ones who need support. When I read this, it made me think of the first time I went with Maggie to the hospital when she was having a baby. And I got all queasy. These guys are like a husband who gets queasy and wants to pass out in the delivery room with his wife. She's the one who's there about to give birth. And they're the one who needs help. They need some anti-anxiety meds to get through their wife having a baby. It's a little funny, isn't it? So Jesus comes to help them. He says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. A key verse in this passage. It gets to the heart of the contrast between Jesus and His disciples. Between Jesus and you and me. Between Jesus and the rest of humanity. We all have a human will. And that human will can be very motivated to do the right thing. I mean, think of January 1st, right? Or maybe even after a sermon on Sunday. We can get pretty motivated to do the right thing, the noble thing, the courageous thing. But the flesh is weak. 
we often lack, as one commentator said, the moral stamina to follow through on our commitments. James and John told Jesus, we'll drink the cup, but now they're cashed out in the garden. Peter said, I'll die with you before I deny you. But now he can't even pray with him. What a contrast to what we see of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. I don't want us to feel beat up over the example of these disciples. They're representative of all of humanity. The thing we're meant to see is the success of Jesus. And that's our great hope and our great joy. Instead of Him denying God's will, He denies Himself. Instead of being tripped up by the cross, He stands up after praying and goes to the cross. So let's turn now to Jesus' prayer in the garden. Here we see what I've already said, that Jesus aligns His human will with the will of God. In the garden, Jesus prays three times, we're told. I want to highlight Jesus' emotional state as He prays and then this progression of His prayers. Notice first in verses 37-38, to we read, He began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then He said to His disciples, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. The New Living Translation says, My soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. The language here in the original is almost identical to what we find in the repeated refrain of Psalm 42 and 43. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil with me? Very sorrowful, troubled, crushed with grief, cast down in turmoil. Jesus is experiencing severe mental and emotional distress. Why? Before we answer the question, what's causing this deep distress? We have to back up for a minute and simply acknowledge that He is in distress. I actually think this may be the critical point within this passage. This distress that Jesus is experiencing is only possible because He is fully human. He is experiencing human emotion. And the reason that He is in such distress will only make sense to us the significance of His distress and what follows on the heels of that will only make sense to us if we grasp the fact that this is the Son of God, fully God, and yet fully human. 
The anguish that Jesus is experiencing is human anguish. He prays, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from Me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as You will. Jesus is in anguish because He wants to do the will of God. But He also wants to have this cup of suffering pass from Him. His Spirit is willing to obey God's will. But He is aware that in His humanity, the flesh is weak. His flesh is not sinful, but it is still human. For theologically minded people, this causes some difficulties for us that I want to take a little break and try and clear the way on. How could there be any tension between the will of the Father and the will of the Son? The Bible clearly teaches that our God is one. There is one God who eternally exists in a loving unity of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. Those three persons are undivided. There is no division in God. And so, for Jesus to be fully God, He can't have a divided will from the will of the Father in His deity. The Father and the Son are united in will. So how can Jesus pray? Not as I will, but as You will. Isn't the will of the Father the same as the will of the Son? Yes. In His deity. But, when the second person of the Trinity took on flesh, when He became a man, He added humanity to His deity. He is now fully God and fully human. And His full humanity is necessary if He is going to save us from our sins. If Jesus is not fully man, He can't save man from our sins. And if He is to be fully human, then He must have a fully human will. A human will that makes human choices according to human desires and longings and aspirations and even aversions. So when we encounter Jesus in the garden, we are encountering somebody who is fully human. Who is experiencing deep human emotions that have to do with His desires and His longing. He's experiencing deep emotional distress at the prospect of the cross. He wants to live within the will of God. But He also has a natural human desire to avoid what He has to endure on the cross. It's not the physical suffering that I think He's 
that's causing such distress. It has to do with the weight of the cross. The weight of the cross. He prays, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from Me. Why does He use that language? The Old Testament uses the language of the cup regularly. Almost exclusively as a reference to God's judgment. To God's wrath. I'll quote simply one example. I could multiply this many times over. Psalm 75, 7-8 we read, It is God who executes judgment, putting down one, lifting another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and He pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Why is Jesus in deep distress? Why is He sorrowful to the point of death? Because He knows what's in front of Him. He's about to drink the cup of God's wrath down to the very dregs. The weight that Jesus is about to bear on His shoulders is more than the weight of a wooden cross. It is the awesome weight of sin that will be placed upon His shoulders. And as He contemplates God pouring out His wrath upon Him, as He contemplates God placing the iniquities of us all upon Him, He's driven to deep anguish within His human soul. He has a natural human desire to avoid that. Can you blame Him? How would you feel if you knew with the greatest level of clarity that within hours you would face the wrath of God? Would you be a little shaken up? But what does Jesus do with this tension? Does He fight? Does He flee? No, He keeps praying. And in His second prayer, we see development. Here He says, Father, if this cup cannot pass unless I drink it. This is verse 42. If this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. I think he's basically saying here, I know that I have to drink the cup of your wrath. I've always known it. But now my heart's catching up with my head. My human will is lining up with the divine will. I'm ready. 
I'm ready to do your will. And if he wasn't all the way there in his second prayer, then we know he's there when he finishes the third. Because when he finishes praying, notice his tones changed. He says to his disciples, See the hours at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. And then as we continue to read the narrative, we see a man who is fully resolved to do his Father's will. He doesn't take to flight. He doesn't fight. He faces death fully aligned with his Father's will. His divine will has always been aligned with the Father. But He took on flesh to ransom us. He became a man to deal with the sin of man. And so it was necessary in His human will to also line up with the will of God. He submits in His humanity to the Father. He denies Himself. He denies the human desire for self-preservation. He makes a decision to follow the will of God. He will not be tripped up by the temptation to avoid the cross. All else behind me, the cross before me, no turning back. The decisive decision in human history. Before he goes to the cross, he decides to go to the cross. This decision is as important, if I can say, for our salvation as the cross itself. For in this decision, Jesus as a human is perfectly and fully surrendering His human will to the divine will for the first time in human history. As the new Adam, He's doing what the first Adam failed to do and that all in Adam have failed to do since. In the first garden, as Don Carson says, Adam said, not your will, but mine. And he changed the Garden of Eden into a desert. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus says, not my will, but yours. And he opens the way for his people to follow him back into paradise. Jesus not only died in our place, Praise God. We're going to be talking about that for the next few weeks. He also lived in our place. He offers both His perfect death and His perfect life as a substitute for us. Whereas His disciples and all of humanity with them failed to do the will of God, Jesus did not fail. But that's not all that He did. He decided to go to the cross. He went to the cross. But then He was also raised from the dead. While the Father didn't answer Jesus' prayers to deliver Him from death, the Father did deliver Him 
through death. Jesus was raised from the dead. And if we are in Him, although we too must go the way of the cross, we too will one day be raised with Him. It's interesting that at the very beginning of this passage where Jesus predicts that the disciples will fall away, that when the shepherd is struck, that the sheep will scatter, He then in the very next breath, in verse 32, says, but when I'm raised up, I'm going to meet you in Galilee. You're going to be gathered around Me again. He promised a future after their failure. And the same is true for all of us who are in Him. Through the cross, He provides forgiveness of our sins. He gives us a blessed hope to look forward to. But He also gives us the Spirit. He gives us the Spirit that gives us new hearts that enable us out of our human will to say, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. To take up our cross and to follow Him. We do this based off of the work He has done for us. And we do this following the example of the new Adam. The new humanity that was accomplished through His perfect life and His perfect death. Let us look to Him in faith. Let us pray. Father, I pray that You would help us to grasp this very basic truth that without Jesus' perfect life, without His perfect death, we are dead dead in our sins, without hope, without God in this world. And yet, because of the life, death, and resurrection of Your Son, we can have life. We can have forgiveness. I pray for anybody here today who does not believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who does not believe yet that He died for their sins, that You would grant them faith that they would come home today. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.